The reading today comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Jesus is getting into how he is the fulfillment of the word of God, how he's actually not come to do away with it, but to set it to its, to its climax. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, this insult, this verbal insult, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So a, a few months back, a former Facebook employee came out, went, went public, and released a slew of internal documents. I don't know if you remember this article coming out, like a, a bunch of major publications covered this, but uh, the articles that followed uh, were about whistleblowing and uh, enforcing of policies and privacy and hate speech. And this, I think, caught attention for one or two news cycles, and then like the rest of life, we just exhaled and things went on. And I had all but forgotten about this gal who came out and she made an appeal before uh, the Senate, and I don't know, this, this whole thing happened. I'd, I'd forgot about it until engaging with Jesus' teaching texts on anger. Because when I was reading through Jesus' words and kind of studying around it, it just kept coming to mind. And, and it wasn't about the whistleblowing, but it was about this piece of anger settled in the midst of all of the documents that were released. And this is, this is what I mean. There was an article by the Washington Post, and whatever you think about the Washington Post, just set that aside for a moment. It, this article reported, out of a desire to increase social interaction, Facebook added emojis in 2017. Now go with me back to 2017 for a moment. It's hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a minute. So before this moment, there, were, there was the like button, and I think the thumbs down maybe was there. But then it's five or six little caricature faces were added. And the anger emoji is the one that goes from yellow to red and has the furrowed eyebrows. It's kind of... I think you can picture it. You've, perhaps you've used it. It's not the one that's exploding. I think that's newer. But this is 2017. And so this emoji goes in there, and what's so curious is that this anger emoji disproportionately is rewarded by the algorithm that puts stories in your newsfeed. So for example, if you engage with an article and you find it to be inflammatory, so you press that little button, all of a sudden that algorithm rewards that action by placing at a scale of five to one those types of articles in your newsfeed. In 2018, they find, they start to, I don't know, do some research around this, and they go, this is alarming, so they decrease it to four to one, because <laughs> accountability. And so, they, they do this kind of longitudinal study, this long study, and 
this data starts just coming out. And, and what, what the point is basically this. Negative interaction with those posts pushes more of those posts in front of you. And the curiosity that I have with respect to this, and I, I don't, I'm not like in IT, I don't, I'm not trying to critique social media altogether, but what's curious to me is that users are more likely to engage with anger-inducing posts, but engagement is the goal for a company like this. So if engagement is taking place, there's no financial incentive to remove those measures. There's actually more incentive to keep those things in place. And you could argue that if left unchecked, social media is not just fertile soil for cultivating anger, it's actually the fertilizer as well. It's a both and that uh, agricultural illustration was for you, Karen. And yet, you see, when we, when we, thanks, Kate, when we turn away, Kate, do, or, or Karen does research in science and agriculture, and she plants things back on track. See, when we, when we turn away from our devices, it's not as though the anger that we like had in that moment for that inflammatory article doesn't just stay with our device. It actually goes with us out into the world, into our living rooms, in with our friends. And if it just stayed with our device, that would be lovely, except it gets internalized. And I, I think what's been happening since 2017 and probably way before that is that we've been kind of sitting in this pot of anger, just stewing in it and adding, seasoning it with our own outrage. There's like outrage culture. I, and just if, if this line has come out of your mouth in, in the past two years, you're not alone. I can't believe they're doing, insert the thing. I can't believe they would, what, what is that spirit? I can't believe. I think it is this outrage that we've been been stewing in. And this is not an attempt, again, to make a boogeyman out of social media so that Christians can have a new thing to be angry about and vent our angst. And this is also not trying to hold up anger as a shameful thing. Because my guess is, is that if we all went and just did away with our social medias, which I think would be very good for our souls, uh, but if we just did away with something else would make us angry. It would be the person sitting next to you. <laughs> Because you might actually, you know, see them more. And then you would really be angry. But, see, so it's not just social media in general. And this is also not a shaming of anger because sometimes it, anger is a signal in our body that the, the things around us are wrong. And we would do well to listen to that signal. See, sometimes emotions get this foul play in church spaces where we want to uh, mistrust or even push aside and, 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 and kind of vilify our, our emotions. But emotions are just information in our body. It's telling us that there's something going on. Maybe it's a threat. Maybe it's something joyful. But it's information to help us make sense of the world around us. And so I'm not trying to vilify, make a boogeyman out of social media, or shame our anger. Instead, I, I want to say, what's the point in this? <laughs> Perhaps it's that there's another way to attend to our anger. Maybe we don't need to like smash the angry emoji and participate. Maybe there's a different way to attend to this stuff that's happening in and around us. And I think that Jesus has a way to deal with this, a, a practice 
that neither um, consumes, allows us to be consumed by anger and also prohibits, like it restrains us from consuming others in our anger. So we don't get consumed by the anger around us, nor do we consume others in our own anger. Instead, we stand secure in Jesus. And I think that that's what Jesus is actually getting at in his teaching here, because this is all built up on this, this thing called the kingdom of the heavens, or what Jesus is called the kingdom of God. And in fact, this has been the central feature of the Sermon on the Mount, where we've been for the past number of weeks, and that the kingdom of God, is, as Jesus proclaims it in, in Matthew chapter 4, he says, um, turn around, or Jesus' language, repent, change your mind about the way you think God works in the world, because God's reign and rule is at hand. It's breaking in. It's not fully here, but it's breaking in through me. See, the kingdom is a, is a reality. And this is what's so curious with Jesus, is he, there's a moment in the Gospels where the, the people see a display of the power of Jesus and they want to make him king by force. They want to set him up as the one who will rule on their terms. But Jesus refuses to rule on the terms of others because there's a different ethic, moving the kingdom of God. It's called love. And so the kingdom then, it's neither left nor right nor religious. Instead, its, its movement is compelled by love. How are we doing here? Jesus has a way to attend to our anger, and he, he's going to get at it in a strange way because he's not just going to say, love your neighbor. He'll do that in a moment, but he has a, he's going to foreground it with a different type of teaching. Essentially, he's saying that anyone who has room in their hearts for the Creator God to do a new thing, to, to transform what's going on, the old thing, that they actually have room to encounter the kingdom. So, so today, if you have room to, in your heart, in your inner woman or your inner man, for God to do a new thing in the midst of the old, for transformation to take place, you actually have capacity then to encounter the kingdom. Because this is not a thing that's held captive to the pages of Scripture. It's something that's being released through the Spirit right now. Amen? We say amen. See, the tension that Jesus is in is that there are those who think he's there to subvert the kingdom of God, to, to subvert the reign and rule of God. And in, in one sense, he is, but he's not doing it in the way that they think. They have this thing called the Torah, the, the law. And if you abide by the Torah the, and you keep it, then it will bring out righteousness, a right relationship to God and neighbor. And when you're righteous, then God will come. But Jesus is saying, you've missed the point. And so let me tell you what this is all about. And this is where we then get to our teaching. So let's just work through this bit by bit. Jesus coming to bring it to fulfillment. We hear Jesus saying this in verse 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago in ancient days, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. No one is surprised by that, yeah? Okay. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. How are you doing with that one? look a little pensive here, a little like, I don't know about that. See, at first blush, um, it kind of does sound like Jesus is doing away with the law. <laughs> you think, you have heard it said, this thing, but I say this. And we think, we, we take that contrast of but, and we go, well, surely he's doing away with this thing. But what did Jesus just say before this? He said, 
I have not come to abolish or do away with the law and the prophets. Rather, I have come to fulfill. That, that is, I've come to bring them to their climax. So then is Jesus then going to turn next and negate the thing he just said? I don't, I don't think so. So we have to have enough flexibility in our thinking to think, okay, Jesus, what are you doing then? If, if you're saying you have heard it said, but I tell you, what's, what's going on here? See, Jesus is here to reveal God's desire to restore all things. And so what, what Jesus is entering into is this comparison. He's setting up what's, what would be thought of as a light command and a heavy command up against one another and saying that they both have significance. We touched a little on this last week, but we see this. We see this when we look at the end of both verses 21. So just check this out. What do you see? What little phrase do you see at the end of verses 21 and 22? You can say it. It's at the very end. Subject to judgment. Maybe you're uh, you're, you're reading out of the ESV. It says liable to judgment. So how do we feel about that word judgment? It's like our, we have that cross-stitched on a pillow, hung up on a wall. Just that's like key to the Christian life. Yeah, tattooed. That's for the millennials and gens, I guess. Um, no, this, this word is an offense. And yet Jesus, he, he frames up this thought. And we can be distracted. We, we go through, and this is like one of those speed bumps that scrapes the bottom of your car. And you're like, I don't, I'm never going to travel down this path again because this judgment is an offense. But Jesus' audience knows good and well that it is appropriate for judgment to come when murder is the issue. And the murder that uh, Jesus is talking about here, this is not incidental manslaughter. This is intentional killing. So this murder here has the idea of forcefully and intentionally taking someone else's life. This is not, Jesus is not just like saying generally, no, this is, this is evil. And so we're okay. Like we're like, yes, judgment is appropriate in that space. But what's often dismissed then and I think now as just no big deal is what Jesus places alongside of this. This is this light command taken from Leviticus 19 that essentially is saying, do not harbor hate in your heart toward a fellow Israelite. So Jesus pulls this heavy command, do not, mit- do not murder. This is from the Big Ten. We, we know this. And then Jesus pulls this obscure command from Leviticus 19 not to like, hold hate in your, art toward, in your heart toward a brother and sister, and he places them alongside one another. Jesus is likely riffing on, on the way that laws would be ranked. So people would say, well, surely, like murder, we're not going to do that. But, um, you know, Moshe keeps, well, his mule keeps, you know, doing what on my fields, and I, I want it to stay off. I know that there's maybe some benefits to the manure, but I, he needs to figure out what to do with it. And so there's this, this holding of bitterness. And maybe Moshe has never done anything to Aaron, and he doesn't really care at the end of the day. Like, but there's something that's brooding in his heart. Jesus is after that. He's after the heart of the matter. So let's just talk about then uh, anger for a moment. You see, Jesus could have chosen a number of words to talk about anger. He could have chosen this word, uh, thymus. And so this is, uh, think of when you strike a match, how quickly it ignites, and then whatever the match length is, is how long that will burn. 
This is this thymus, this anger that quickly comes up. Um, I was thinking a little bit about this. I think this is what happens when we get cut off in traffic. If you're still driving, like if that's something that you're doing these days, and it just and maybe and you just feel like oh, it's this outrage, and then um, life keeps happening, and you get to where you're going. Hopefully, this is this idea of thymus. Jesus could have easily used this word, but instead he uses this word orgizo. And it's a term which literally means something like this, he who is continually given over to anger. In other words, if you are usually currently angry, this is you. There's this funny little turn of phrase, if everything bothers you, everything is not the problem. Just let that sink in for a little while. And this type of anger, this is the type of anger that is subject to judgment on par with murder. This is the type of anger that is brooding in your heart and it just leaks out in these toxic ways. Jesus is attending to this. He's placing the light and the heavy alongside of one another and, is, and calling attention to the restoration that God is after. He doesn't just want a people who won't kill each other. He wants a type of people who won't harbor bitterness in their hearts so that restoration can come. How are we doing? So this is Jesus on anger. And this is pretty simple at this point. Don't kill people. Got it? Um, anger and bitterness. Yeah, that's pretty simple, right? No, because there is no place for this type of anger in God's kingdom. And, and the angering that then leaks out of our heart, you see, it's like we press a button or we tap our phone, and that angering just it has effects that we can't even understand. It just, it starts to multiply, and it multiplies in our hearts and in others, and the real damage that's taking place in, in, on the internet, like, this is such a weird thing. I'm, try, I'm trying to think, how do we, I listened to a number of teachings, read some articles on how do you pastor in the digital age when this is a thing, and there's this, there's this work done by the Barna Group and this, um, this guy named David Kinnaman, he talks about digital Babylon, of this, the era that we're living in, that this is like for followers of Jesus, this feels like a place where we are exiles, and yet the landscape is not where we are displaced from our land, but it's as though we're displaced on the internet. And I don't pretend to understand this, but what does it look like to live faithfully in a landscape that is so incendiary, where you can get canceled for one wrong statement, and I, this is just a curious place to be. But Jesus wants to get at this reality of, of anger because he doesn't want it just to be gone. He wants it to be healed. So this isn't just like the morality police in the church. No, this is actually about healing because when this type of anger manifests, it does so in real violence. Like we can see, if you think back to January 6th, of the previous, like the insurrection at the Capitol, like that is anger. Where did that start? On chat forums. Like, this is stuff that has real-life consequences. It hurts human bodies here and now. And this type of anger, it endures as a fence before the living God. This is why it is subject to judgment, because those who bear God's image are the ones who are taking the brunt of that violence. And I don't think for a moment that Jesus is diminishing the anger or d diminishing the murder. Instead, I think he's raising the volume on the consequences of our speech. Did you ever hear, growing up, um, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me? What a load of crock. Like, I, I have these moments where a thing will be said, and all of a sudden, a flash of memories come up that 
I'm like, am I crying? I don't, what is that? Am I, is, are my eyes, what's happening to my, like, it just, it elicits something deep in our hearts because words actually have a wounding nature and they stay with us. See, Jesus, Jesus wants to actually see restoration break in, so he leans on this and and he does so with these illustrations. And to my mind, this actually invites us into the life of the kingdom because Jesus, he's interested in that type of life, a life that endures, a life of love to get inside of us. Because we actually, we don't just need new patterns of speech, though that's helpful. We actually need a new spirit. We need interior restoration. And so this is how Jesus gets at this. Go, go with me to verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So first, we'll get to the whole gift and offering thing. But notice at the end of verse 23 that this is not a matter of you having a beef with somebody else. It's not like Jesus is signaling out you in the midst of your bitterness towards this. No, this is, this is someone who has something against you, and it's now your responsibility to attend to that tension. Does this feel as backwards to you as it does to me? So I, I remember the first time I got the book Boundaries. You know, it's the book with the white cover and the pencil. Does anybody just show hands? Yeah, that circulates in Christian spaces enough. It's actually a helpful work. Boundaries began to form in my life, but what they became were just modes of self-protection. So I would call something a boundary, but it was really just because I didn't want to deal with a hard thing. So, like, I'm estranged from my dad for close to a decade, and I would, you know, talk to my therapist about it. I'd be like, okay, so I have a boundary here, and the thing that he does, which is really annoying, is he presses on that, and he says, well, is that actually the freedom? Like, have you released that? Because it seems more like you're fenced in rather than something else. So, so what are we doing here? See, we are actually held in captivity to these these frustrations, these interpersonal dynamics, like they have the power to hold us. And Jesus is, if he's after a whole person restoration, he's attending to these interpersonal matters. And notice that this is a brother or sister. So this is like, you can think about it, the disciples of Jesus. This is like a conflict in the community. And so what do you do? You go and you seek that person out. Because this relational riff can actually obstruct your worship. And this is the whole point. This whole thing is about what you do, where you give your affections. It's about worship. See, if this does feel as backwards to you as it does to me, then we would do well to note that um, Jesus doesn't comment on whether that person is justified in their grievance or not. <laughs> he doesn't add any other color commentary on the situation. He essentially points to the grievance and says that reconciliation is needed. And I don't know what to do with the details of that. 
Perhaps it's like on a case-by-case basis. So I don't think that we can lay this over. Like in cases of abuse, we, we would do what, or trauma, that, like abuse that's led to a traumatic experience. Like we actually need to have boundaries and have people to help us keep those in place for the good of people who have been victimized by other folks. I mean, this is a real thing that we don't want to just place a band-aid, a Christian band-aid of like, no, go and forgive them because that might actually exacerbate, do more harm than good. So this creates a space for nuance and discernment, which is precisely why it's needed in a community. Like this, this has a level of, of, of assumption that we actually know each other. This is, cr- this is, I think, the biggest boundary in this text for us, for, for Gateway. Like just look to your left real quick. Okay, maybe you just looked at a flower that's painted on the wall and you're like, I don't. Now look to your right. How many of these folks do you know? Maybe the people immediately around you. My, my point is this, a lot of us are new here. I'm new here. <laughs> like Logan is the person who's been here the longest, like 11 years. And you probably don't know Logan. He's not going to insert himself in your life, by the way. <laughs> but like there's an assumption that there's a deep knowing that's, that's in a community. So we just, th- I see this as an opportunity for us to actually to have this happen. We're gonna have like a little happy hour later on in April where we just wanna create spaces for people to connect. It's not because, I don't know, we need to do more church programming, but we just need to have spaces to actually have some knowing occur so that maybe when there is an offense following the knowing, we could have been discipled in such a way that we would go, yeah, I I would do well. My, My soul would be served by engaging in this because my worship is obstructed in the midst of this relational riff. I just want you to picture this moment because sometimes um, Jesus is being ridiculous, and this is one of the moments. Jesus is saying to a group of people, he's up in the Galilee teaching, which is the northern part of Israel, uh, the, the guess is like 80 miles away from Jerusalem. This is, this is a three-day journey by foot. And so he's saying to these people, if you are in Jerusalem and you recall that somebody has something against you, what I want you to do, like Lammy is about to be slaughtered by the priest, just say, like, pump the brakes, say to the priest, hold on, hold my stuff, I have some business to attend to, I'll be back in about six days. Is Jesus being serious? Yeah. And is this ridiculous? Yes. So what's the point? It's that the brooding of bitterness in our hearts that obstructs worship is so critical to the life and the kingdom that Jesus wants to attend to this thing. Because when that anger, the angering that is like when you are constantly always in a state of anger and bitterness, that actually gives way, is the seedbed for murder. And Jesus is trying to do away with that reality in his kingdom. And he wants to see it break in now. Not sometime far off, but he wants that reality present here. And so he says, go and be reconciled because there's nothing quite like reconciliation, forgiveness that actually starts to bring healing to a community. And sometimes there's actually never been rapport, so there needs to be conciliation before there can be reconciliation. That's a whole different thing. Uh, this is pretty easy to talk about. How, how does it go when you try it? Uh, I mentioned the estrangement I have with my dad, so the the action steps I've been given are to like write a letter, make it tangible, say it to a friend. (laughs) I have written a couple letters, I've never sent one of them. Granted, I don't really know where to send them, but 
Um, I haven't taken that moment to go, okay, I'm going to find an address and send it to, to that place. See, this is easy to talk about, especially here. Like, I can have a, a level of, like, guarded vulnerability. I can share what I want to. But if, if, we, if this is, like, a real interpersonal thing, like, often the stuff that we carry woundedness in our heart is not light. Like these, are, these are matters of deep offense, and we've carried them for a long time. And so this is not a, wow, I, I heard a teaching on Sunday, and it's done. M- maybe. Like, I trust that the Spirit of the living God can actually heal the deep fissures of woundedness in our heart, and I pray that that takes place. And it's probably going to take, like, a couple of years. <laughs> and so we're here for that. And if that's just inside of the community, what about something outside of it? Well, Jesus then turns to this as we kind of turn to a close in verse 25. Jesus says this about matters outside of a community. He says, settle them quickly. That little line there, it carries this sense of friendliness. And I don't know how friendly you want to be with your adversary, but it's really that you would be agreeable. Be agreeable with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, Jesus is doubling down on this call to be a community of reconciliation. And I think that this is just something we have to practice. And It's not a thing that gets done perfectly. It's often more messy than the offense in the first place. And yet the movement toward reconciliation is one that actually looks like the way of Jesus. I think I want like a a cookie cutter faith. I I want a, a life with Jesus where I have a single input and a single output. And yet it's um, more complicated I want a smooth life with Jesus where it's like a road that's just been paved. It almost looks like shining licorice has just gone out behind it. And yet the reality of the life is it's just a a road littered with potholes. And we can try and smooth over it, but if we've not attended to the substructures of those things, those things will form again. The potholes, the deep crevices in our lives will form again. So what is Jesus doing? He's saying there is another way. And he's saying that this way actually brings the restoration we desire. In and out of the beloved community, Jesus draws our attention to the severity of anger, and then he connects it to our favorite word, judgment. Like there's actually a lasting reality of how we live in the world. And I, I know that when we come into the room, we're all trying to make sense and make meaning of what we're doing in the day-to-day. Um, I have this conviction that Jesus of Nazareth actually is interested in you, like like each one of you, and yet you individually are not more important than the church collectively. That doesn't diminish your significance, and I know like in an age where we see ourselves as individuals, that could be a really offensive thing. That's not my point. It's that to, like, actually, to, and this is weird in America. If you've come from the majority world where the, your community has more honor than you as a person, that makes sense. And that's Jesus. He comes where the collective reality of a community actually has greater significance than you. But I think Jesus, in that context, is subversive because then he, he presses on the individual and he says, no, you actually have great significance. You bear the image of the living God. And for you to receive reconciliation is a great, you are worth reconciliation. You are worth forgiveness. And yet for us, I think we need to hear, like, this community is actually worth forgiveness. 
Like we need to see something bigger than ourselves. And I think if we stopped here, it would be fine. We could have a, a nice little teaching, hear some bits about Jesus' teaching on anger, but I don't know if we would actually see how Jesus lives this out. Have you ever asked this question of yourself or of the scriptures, like, did Jesus ever get angry? <laughs> you know that bracelet? I, this wasn't like hype for me because I didn't follow Jesus in the 90s, but anybody with the WWJD? Is that, I, I, like, it's coming back, I think. I don't know. The spirit of the 90s is alive. Um, that's such a good question, though. Like, when we, when we center the Sermon on the Mount and we center the Gospels, like, we actually spend time with Jesus of Nazareth, that is an operative question for the follower of Jesus. What would he do? What would the Spirit of Jesus look like in this moment? And we could be totally wrong because we're just, like, asking one another that question. But if we want to know, was Jesus angry and what did he do with his anger, we actually have a place to look in the Scriptures. So go with me, if you will. Flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 3. Right at the beginning of Mark chapter 3, we'll find a, one of a few occurrences of Jesus getting angry. We'll see that Jesus gets angry in a number of other places. You, you can Google that and look it up on your own time. Uh, there's, this is the point I want to bring us to because we see this involved moment. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, another time Jesus went into the synagogue. A synagogue is like a local gathering of God-fearing followers, kind of like a church. Jesus goes into this place, and there's a man with a shriveled hand. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and the some of them in this is likely referring to the Pharisees, who we see in verse 6. So some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely. Notice all of the looking and the seeing, what's going on there. They're watching him closely to see if he would heal him on a Sabbath. Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And just stop right there for a moment. It's thought that this man with a shriveled hand was placed in the synagogue as a ploy, as, as a way to test Jesus. Because the Sabbath is a day where all of these rules and regulations for the people of God would stand in place so that they would not, quote-unquote, break the Sabbath, that they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. There was even a group of people who developed rules for the rules so that you would never get close. It was called building a fence. So they would build a fence outside of the law so you never got close to breaking it. So they had all of these traditions around the law. And so it's thought that this man with a shriveled hand is brought in there to see, will Jesus actually cross the boundary? Will he do the thing? And so this man who is a prop to test him, Jesus, it's thought, calls him out, stand up in front of everyone. And just think, do you want to be objectified? Like, do you want to be made a show of? No. Like, if any of you know the pain of, like, having an affliction in your body that is seen by the world, you never want that to be seen. You want it to remain hidden because there's shame. And so this man who's likely filled with shame, communal shame, is made a prop of, and Jesus then stands him up, but he doesn't do it to his shame. Look at this. Verse 4, then Jesus said to them, which is lawful on a Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? And it's crickets. They remain silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts 
And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This man who was, who was objectified to prove a theological point, it was made a spectacle of Jesus restores to honor in that community. And how does he do it? He is angry. What, what comes alongside that? Look at this, verse 5. In anger and deeply distressed. It's like you can see the compassion that Jesus has for this man because why? Jesus is after the restoration of a community. This is the type of people we want to become. Those who hold our anger for the good of others and we're not consumed by it, neither do we consume others in it. But rather, like Jesus, we direct our anger. We, show, like we square our shoulders at the injustice that, that offends people, that breaks them down. And to be very honest, I think we think more about this than we do this. I certainly do. We are learning slowly but surely how to put on justice in our body as we move toward those who might actually need it. And this was pointed out to me. I actually didn't notice this. Um, Jordan pointed this out to me. He, he, he noticed the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. Notice what, what the anger of the Pharisees leads to. They actually get together with the Herodians, who they would not normally affiliate with. This is like a, a Democrat and a Republican getting together to like make policy. <laughs> no, cancel this. This is like alt-right and alt-left like getting together to make some policy. And they get together to do what? To plot the end of Jesus' life. In other words, they are angering. They are brooding with bitterness that gives way to death. Jesus is interested in drawing that out of a community, but his anger, the anger that Jesus has that moves toward love and the restoration of people actually exacerbates the other anger. See, there is a different way for us to live in the world. We can be deeply offended at the injustices that happen around us. They ought to piss us off. Intentional wordage there. Like they ought to like stoke something deep in us and then we ought to allow that in partnership with the Spirit to move us toward the restoration of all things. Does it matter? Well, those people have to be Christian first. No, do they bear God's image? Then they are worthy of dignity and honor and respect. The way of Jesus actually moves toward creation and says, you, you are loved by God. That is the type of Jesus that we follow. That's the type of Jesus that we are trying to be discipled in the way of here. And that will be directly offensive to us. Like Jesus will stand and look at our anger and correct it. And he won't turn away. He won't shame us. He'll actually move toward us in love. And so I, I want us to actually practice this anger. And here's why. Because when Jesus is moving toward this place of ultimate testing... When, when the plot by the Pharisee and in the, in the Herodians gives way and consumes Jesus, this is the movement toward the cross, when that happens, um, Jesus finds himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what you see there is a man who's basically having a panic attack. And it looks like he is consumed, consumed by the moment. And you wonder, how, how could he ever stand the cross? Like, if the moment before the cross is crushing him, how could he endure? 
Meanwhile, the disciples are like asleep. So it looks like in the face of, of challenge that they're actually doing quite well. But when the cross comes, what do we see? All of the disciples abandon Jesus. And where does Jesus go? He goes to the place of the cross. He actually endures it. And why does he endure it? The author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endures the cross. This is the movement of Jesus. That there is a place. And so how did Jesus cultivate this reality that could endure these moments of testing? We see that Jesus often withdrew into the wilderness. He would meet the anger in, of, of the crowds. He would meet these intense moments and he would withdraw into the presence of God. And so there's, there's some neuroscience. I know I'm switching here because we're going to actually try this. Um, there's some neuroscience that talks about turning things on and turning things off when you're not in an aroused state. So you turn on anger. How do you do this? You flare your nostrils. So when the, when the Hebrew Bible talks about anger, it says God, he's long of nose. So imagine your angry face right now. Close, just close your eyes with me. There's got to be just maybe a little bit of trust. Um, a, lot of, a lot of trust. Okay. If, if you're introverted, do whatever you want. Um, but if you could just imagine your angry face. You got it? Okay. Maybe you're well practiced in it. Um, we're going to put that on in a moment. And then... There's this line in the Psalms that says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. And so what happens at a, like a neurobiological level is that when we turn on, like when we flare our nostrils and we make an angry, like I like make a fist, we do that. It actually tells our brain that we're angry. But because we're not in a state, a state of arousal, we can actually then come back down with that line. And what we're doing is we're attaching ourselves to the care of God. So this is something that's actually happening in your body. And so um, my invitation is, like why we have our eyes closed, if you're able, is because you maybe don't want to see your neighbor's angry face. Um, we're going to do this a few times. Is we're, gonna, um, we're going to make that face. We'll, we'll actually look angry, and then we'll say this line, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. And so I'll, you'll just kind of follow me. I'll make an angry face. It'll be about a second. You can watch me if it's helpful for you. And we'll say this a couple times because we actually need to practice this in a, in a relatively secure way. So uh, let's get angry, shall we? <laughs> I'll, I'll give us a little countdown. Maybe a little one, two, three. Yeah, one, two, three. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Let's do it again. One, two, three. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Do it again. One, two, three. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. 